Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Nihongo Master Podcast. I'm your host Azra, and today we'll be talking about a topic that's really close to my heart. Food. Glorious food. Food is the quickest way to the heart of any culture, but when it comes to Japan, you might struggle to decide exactly where to start. The food culture here is as diverse as it is rich, with dozens of individual cuisines making up the national culinary repertoire. You know sushi, of course, but have you heard of shoujin ryori? And yeah, there's a good chance you've tried ramen, but how about a big griddle-cooked hiroshimayaki? If you have no idea what I'm talking about, don't worry. We'll cover all of that and more today. We'll be heading to some of the grubby local diners of Osaka, some of the oldest restaurants in Kyoto, and some of the fanciest sushi joints in Tokyo to learn why Japan has such a stratospheric reputation when it comes to good grub. And that's no exaggeration. Japan has the second most amount of Michelin-star restaurants in the world with over 400. What's even better is that it also has some of the cheapest too. Imagine getting a Michelin-starred bowl of noodles for the equivalent of 10 US dollars. I'm about to tell you how. So without further ado, let's kick off our list with a visit to the historic capital of Kyoto. It was in this historic city that Japan's most high-class and authentic style of dining was invented, kaiseki. It's not particularly famous outside of Japan, but kaiseki is a big deal on the culinary scene here. Basically, at a kaiseki restaurant, you'll be sitting along a counter with room for only a handful of people, where a highly skilled chef cooks up a series of small dishes in front of you. There can be anything from around 10 to a few dozen courses included, but you won't have any say in what's served. That's because kaiseki meals are strictly omakase, a word which essentially means chef's choice. You can actually use this when ordering at basically any restaurant where the chef cooks in front of you. Sushi places, tapanyaki, yakiniku, in which case it translates to, I'll leave it up to you. But at kaiseki restaurants, it's the standard. The dishes which the chef chooses are based heavily on the seasons and daily availability at the markets. There's a strong emphasis on freshness and craftsmanship, with top kaiseki chefs competing to curate as perfect a dining experience as possible. A big part of that is the traditional Japanese hospitality, known as omotenashi, in which a good host has to be attentive to very fine details. This hospitality aspect harks way back to the very start of kaiseki in the courtly culture of Imperial Kyoto. The cuisine started as part of traditional Japanese tea ceremonies called sado, which the upper classes would put on to entertain their guests. There's a hell of a lot of philosophy that surrounds brewing a cup of green tea in Japan, usually the powdered variety, matcha, with every step of the process having specific procedures that can take years to perfect. Usually, tea ceremonies include some wagashi, traditional Japanese sweets usually made from a crushed rice paste called mochi. But some wealthy hosts decide to go one better and include some traditional dishes too. After a while, this multi-course dining format made its way into restaurants and took the tea ceremony philosophy with it. If you head to the fancy historic district of Gion in Kyoto, you'll find loads of high-class kaiseki restaurants some of which go back centuries and have stayed in the same families ever since. But since kaiseki is one of the most prestigious and Michelin-style cuisines in Japan, don't expect to eat cheap here. If you were to pay 10,000 yen for a kaiseki meal, you'd be scrimping, that's all I can say. But those who are willing to shell out their money are in for a treat. This is Japanese dining at its most traditional and authentic. 
There's a specific sequence which the dishes usually follow, starting with a seasonal platter called a hasun, moving through soups, sashimi, charcoal grilled dishes and more, before finishing up with a seasonal rice bowl called a gohan. The base of it all though, is a soup stock called dashi, which basically underpins all Japanese cuisine. It's made from dried fish, usually skipjack tuna, which is shaved into flakes and used to make the broth. It sounds really simple, but this culinary staple is a huge deal among kaiseki chefs. They each tend to have their own recipe, mixing different kinds of fish, and some even do things like drawing fresh spring water from temples to make it. I guess it feels less painful spending $300 on a meal where the chef at least has a story behind the dishes. Maybe not much less painful, but a little at least. Okay, here's a quick vocab recap. Omakase. Chef's choice dining, which can mean, I'll leave it up to you, when ordering. Omotenashi. Classic Japanese hospitality. Sado. Tea ceremony, also sometimes called chado. Wagashi. Traditional Japanese sweets. Mochi. A paste made from crushed rice. Gohan. A cooked rice dish, although this word can also simply mean meal in general. Dashi. The foundational soup stock of Japanese cuisine. Okay, now on to more familiar ground. Sushi. You know sushi, right? This rice and fish dish is famous worldwide, but nowhere will you get fresher than in Japan itself. Although, you might be surprised that not every restaurant here serves it fresh. Some of the top Michelin-style sushi restaurants actually age their fish to get stronger flavours, which is technically a more traditional style of the dish than the fresh varieties. But we'll get to that in a minute. The best thing about sushi in Japan is that, unlike kaiseki, you can enjoy it on any budget. There are cheap places called kaiten sushi, sushi go-rounds or sushi trains, where you can grab any dish from the conveyor belt for 100 yen, mid-range places where you get to watch the chefs cook everything fresh, and high-end places which take that another level and make it a kind of theatre. You might have seen that upper end of sushi culture if you've watched the documentary Jiro Dreams of Sushi back in 2011 about one of Tokyo's most respected pescatarian masters. If you're dreaming of trying his sushi, don't hold your breath. These top Michelin-star restaurants in Tokyo's upmarket Ginza district have waiting lists which can stretch up to two years long and some will only let you book if an existing customer refers you. You'll always have plenty of other options though, with thousands of sushiya, or sushi restaurants, in Tokyo alone. If I told you that sushi wasn't actually Japanese, you'd probably think I went crazy, but it's true. Well, okay, sushi as we know it is very Japanese, but it actually has its roots in Southeast Asia. Fishermen in ancient Cambodia needed a way to preserve their catches from the effects of the heat and humidity, so they would pack the fish full of rice, bury it, and leave it to ferment. Sound disgusting? It probably was. So much so that the rice was made totally inedible. But when the dish made its way to Japan via China, it underwent some changes which made it less downright pungent. The Japanese started fermenting it for less time, which made the rice edible along with the fish then eventually stopped fermenting it at all. That's actually why top chefs will still add vinegar to the rice. It used to be done to replicate the tart taste of lightly fermented greens. Although, if you'd prefer the original pungent style, 
it's still alive today in Shiga Prefecture, where fermented carp, funazushi, is a local delicacy. Anyway, by the time the Edo era rolled around, street food vendors were selling little rectangular parcels of fish and rice to busy city dwellers near the docks of old Tokyo. This was the style of sushi we're most familiar with today, known as nigiri, with the fish placed on top of the bed of rice. If you ask a Japanese person where sushi came from though, you might get a very different story from the one I just told you. There's a myth here that sushi was accidentally invented by an old woman who kept having her pots of rice stolen by thieves, so she hid them in a hawk's nest. When she went back to get them, she found that the bird had dropped scraps of fish in the rice and she decided to eat it. Whether the work of an old lady with questionable judgement or savvy Khmer fishermen, it's undeniable that sushi is now distinctly Japanese. Ever since the boom years, sushi has exploded into the number one cuisine here and it's a big part of the reason Tokyo has over 200 Michelin-starred restaurants to its name. It's also a big business. Real big business. The most prized fish among sushi connoisseurs is bluefin tuna, known in Japanese as maguro. Down at Toyosu Market in Tokyo, these fish can fetch some crazy prices, especially during the very first tuna auction of the year. In 2019, the owner of mid-range chain restaurant Sushi Zanmai bought the very first maguro of the year for over 3 million US dollars. Thankfully, not all sushi toppings are so expensive, or we'd have to take out a second mortgage whenever we wanted some for lunch. Actually, not all sushi toppings are fish either. There are dishes with raw beef, vegetables like cucumber and carrot, egg such as tamagoyaki rolled omelette sushi, and if you go to some of the cheap modern chains, you'll even get stuff like cooked salmon with mayonnaise or creamed corn sushi. It's an incredibly broad category which stretches all the way from melt-in-your-mouth raw fish dishes through fresh-from-the-tank shellfish and on to every weird and wonderful concoction imaginable. Here's a vocab recap of everything we just talked about. Sushiya, sushi restaurant. Actually, the ya suffix can be used for several foods to give the name of the restaurants like ramenya and sobaya. Funazushi, Shiga Prefecture's historic fermented fish dish. Nigiri, the rectangular pieces of sushi. Maguro, bluefin tuna. Tamagoyaki, a Japanese rolled omelette. Kaiten sushi. Sushi go-rounds or sushi trains. Okay, so now we've covered Japan's most famous dish and its most high-class style of dining. Now let's take a visit to the temple to look at the food enjoyed by the Soryo, the Buddhist monks of Japan, called Shojin Ryori. Shojin basically translates to devotion, while Ryori means cuisine, making this the food of the devoted. If you're really devoted to Buddhism, there's a solid chance to believe in reincarnation. This means that every meat meal basically comes with the risk of eating your reincarnated ancestor. And eating grandparents is kind of a taboo. That's why their cuisine is plant-based, with the majority of dishes being either vegetarian or vegan-friendly. Not only was this food good for animals, it was also said to be good for the soul. A clean, all-natural cuisine which became a part of daily purification rituals for monks seeking enlightenment. That's not to say eating a bit of tofu and vegetables is going to reveal the meaning of life to you, but it is damn healthy. The practice wasn't just confined to the temples either. 
Normal people took on a lot of the philosophy and dishes of shoujin ryori too. It's maybe part of the reason the Japanese have the second highest life expectancy in the world. But this Buddhism-inspired clean eating wasn't always done voluntarily. For centuries, eating meat at all was a big taboo in Japan. Buddhism came to the country in the 6th century, and within a hundred years, it has spread all across Japan. The first official ban on meat eating was issued by the emperor in 675 AD, and this largely held up, in one way or another, for around 1,200 years. That's not to say that nobody ate a single bit of chicken or beef in all that time. You could eat meat if you wanted, but you have to pay penalties if you were caught, like a period of fasting and repentance before you could visit a temple or shrine. The term of the punishment depended on the animal. Kill then ate a wild wolf? That's five days of penance. Enjoy a lovely T-bone steak? You maniac! That's a full hundred days of fasting. That's why a lot of meaty Japanese dishes were reserved for very special occasions throughout that time. Things like sukiyaki, beef hot pot, were generally reserved for big celebrations, because it's fine to take a hit to your karma points every now and then. Seafood, however, was still on the menu because four-legged mammals were the ones mainly protected, meaning chicken fell in a kind of grey area where it was still taboo, but not nearly as much as munching on a horse. If you're wondering how Japan's huge carnival culture could have happened with all that religious resistance, the answer is that a lot of it developed within the last 150 years. That's because in 1872, the Meiji Emperor ate beef to celebrate the New Year, which was a much more scandalous at the time than it sounds now. That basically spelled the end of the meat bans, and a bunch of angry monks tried to storm the palace in response, which didn't go quite as well as they hoped since half of them were killed. As far as they, and modern vegans, were concerned, eating meat put a black mark on the moral and spiritual character of the country, so they just stuck to their good old-fashioned shoujin ryori. Not that that's a bad thing at all. There's a lot of fantastic dishes in the temple cuisine, and it's making a bit of a comeback nowadays, thanks to an uptick in the number of vegan tourists from the West. Because it's all about clean eating, and clearing the body and mind of impurities, the fare is usually quite simple. Dashi soup stock features heavily, but is often made from kelp rather than fish. Plenty of different tofu varieties will typically feature on the menu, usually eaten grilled, chilled, or in soup. As will bamboo shoots, known as takenoko, soybeans, lotus root, known as renkon, and other seasonal vegetables. The highlighted in most meals though is the vegetable tempura, which is often made with an eggless batter to be totally vegan-friendly. If you're developing a case of the meditative munchies, you shouldn't have much problem finding restaurants to accommodate you whichever city you're visiting. Some of them are based on the sites of old or active temples, so it'll probably be one of the most scenic meals of your life too. And the best part is, no angry monk is going to demand that you fast for half a year just for enjoying your lunch. Right, here's all the useful vocab which we covered in this section. Soryo, Buddhist monk although there are many more words for various types and ranks. Shojin, devotion. Ryori, cuisine. This one is very useful, as you can use it to talk about your country's food too. Italian cuisine is Italia Ryori. American cuisine is America Ryori. Sukiyaki, a kind of Japanese hot pot dish, usually eaten with beef and a sweet sauce. Renkon, 
lotus root, takenoko, bamboo shoots. It's not all about fine dining and temple philosophy in Japanese cuisine. There's plenty of fantastic street food and fast food which come from here too. Each region has its own specialties, but one city that really stands out is Osaka. This is the home of takoyaki, a kind of pan-cooked octopus dough ball, and okonomiyaki, a savoury pancake loaded with meat, vegetables, and sometimes soba noodles. Fast food like this has long been popular in Japan, because, as anyone who's ever lived here knows, the Japanese are just so damn busy. Kenji the cellarman doesn't have time to cook dinner for himself when he works from 8am until 10pm, and the same was true of his great-great-great-grandfather in centuries past. These dishes are often sold at small street food stalls called yatai, which you often see set up on the main roads to popular temples, in parks during festivals, and along the beach in summer. They've been popular since the Meiji era, where there were just small carts pushed along on two wheels. It was in these humble little carts that oden, ramen, tempura, and even sushi got their big breaks. Nowadays, they're undergoing a bit of a revival, as hipster chefs follow in the footsteps of those original fast food hustlers of Japan. One such small-time food vendor in Osaka, called Tomekichi Endo, invented takoyaki way back in 1935. It was an adaptation of a similar kind of spherical beef dumpling, but the octopus version is the one that really caught on. It's cooked in a special pan with semi-spherical indents into which you pour the batter, and getting the perfect shape relies on some quick chopstick work to flip each dumpling at the perfect time. After that, the balls are topped with mayo, special takoyaki sauce, bonito flakes, and kelp flakes. If that doesn't sound all too convincing, just trust me, you need to try it. But yeah, I know some people just aren't into octopus. It's a cultural thing. Thankfully, there are plenty of other Japanese street foods to try. There's yakitori, grilled chicken skewers that feature everything from the white breast meat to the cartilage and skin. Yaki is the word for grilling or pan frying, while tori means chicken. That's why you'll also see it in the words for the street foods, yaki imo, roast sweet potato, and ikayaki, grilled squid skewers. Continuing further down the skewer route, you also have kushikatsu, crispy skewers of meat or vegetable, covered in breadcrumbs and deep fried. There are also lots of different varieties of old fast food classics. Some of them are regional, for example, the okonomiyaki from Hiroshima contains soba noodles and has the pretty unimaginative name Hiroshima-yaki. Then there are modern sensations like the bakudan-yaki, literally meaning fried bomb, a gigantic heart attack-inducing type of takoyaki which did the rounds on Instagram a few years back. If you want to dive headfirst into the world of tasty street treats, head to Dotomori in Osaka, a street food mecca where you can try pretty much the whole range of Japanese fast food. Okay, now for a vocab recap of all our street food Nihongo lingo. Takoyaki, batter balls with octopus inside. Okonomiyaki, a savoury pancake layered with vegetables, meat and other fillings. Yatai, street food stalls. Kushikatsu, breaded and deep fried skewers. Yaki, a wide word for cooking over direct heat including grilling and pan frying. Here are a few of the words you can be combined with. 
Ika, squid. Tori, chicken. Imo, potato. Anyone who pulled all-nighters at university to get their overdue papers finished will be very familiar with our final Japanese food. It's ramen. Although, if you've only ever tried the cheap packaged varieties which line the shelves of supermarkets worldwide, you're really missing out. In Japan, and some trendy cities around the world, ramen restaurants take the simple concept of noodle soup and turn it into a full-fledged cuisine. In fact, there are over 10,000 ramen restaurants across Japan of all shapes and sizes. Usually, there are small neighborhood counter restaurants where you can watch all of the frantic cooking action firsthand. And although these are fast food places, they're not nearly as corporate as the likes of McDonald's and KFC. 80% of the shops are actually small businesses rather than chains. Many of these places have their own specializations and house recipes. Some are the places to go for flaming hot spicy broth, some serve up unique ingredient combos and seasonings. The flexibility of ramen seems pretty much endless and it's one of the most customizable dishes imaginable. It's pretty obvious why ramen is such a popular and iconic Japanese dish, but you might be surprised that it technically isn't even Japanese at all. As with many so-called Japanese things, ramen actually has its roots in China. It came to Japan with Chinese immigrants in the late 19th and early 20th century. They are lamian noodle dish, a simple noodle soup with chicken broth, became popular in port towns like Yokohama, where Chinese traders had to set up shop, and it wasn't long before Japanese yatai cart vendors started selling it in downtown Tokyo too. It's thought that the first proper ramen ya, that's ramen restaurant, remember, was Rai Rai Ken in Asakusa, which opened in 1910. By the time this place opened, ramen had evolved from a simple broth and noodle combo into a fully-fledged meal with chashu, which means braised pork, soy seasoning, vegetables, and seaweed. From there, the dish just went from strength to strength. In the post-war days, it became the go-to lunchtime fill of people working in the rapidly modernizing cities. In 1958, supermarkets started selling the familiar instant packets as a staple for busy housewives. Entrepreneurs decided to quit their jobs and open ramen shops in business districts around the country. Hundreds of different varieties were invented, including tsukemen, in which all of the components are served separately, and the noodles are dipped into the broth. Ramen really was a food for the 20th century. Fast, delicious, varied, cheap, and pretty nutritious. The Japanese government certainly thought so, and since the Meiji era, they had been trying to promote foreign, wheat-based foods in the belief that a diversified, westernized diet would make people stronger and smarter. Although, the idea that wheat makes you smarter than rice is dubious at best, at least we got ramen culture out of it. For the past few decades, this culinary culture has been trendier than ever. Nowadays, the best ramen shops in Japan are ranked and reviewed online, and enthusiasts will queue for hours to slip down a bowl of the best. Top modern shops compete to impress with their chic decor and inventive dishes, while ancient and beat-up ramenya still carry the torch for the dish's old-school roots. There are even three ramen restaurants in Tokyo which hold Michelin stars, and amazingly, you can get their noodles for around the same price as a regular shop, around a thousand yen. That places them among the most affordable Michelin star restaurants in the world. But before you go diving in the deep end, let's make sure you're ready. Here's a quick guide on how to order in a Japanese ramen shop. First, you'll want a talk ticket from the vending machine. 
Each button represents a menu item, and there are four main varieties of ramen which you'll see featured most often. Shio or salt ramen, shoyu or soy sauce ramen, miso ramen and tonkotsu ramen which has a pork bone broth. Once you've navigated the menu and have a ticket in hand, don't go congratulating yourself too soon. The chef might ask some questions when you hand it over. Something like, Okonomi wa arimasu ka? Any preferences? You'll often be able to choose the thickness of noodle, with the two main options being futomen, thick noodles, and hosomen, thin noodles. The firmness of your noodles can be customised too, using one of these three simple words. Futsu, normal, katame, firm, and yawarakame, soft. For example, Meno katame de onegaishimasu. I'd like firm noodles. Okay, I think you're ready now. Head out and try some of that the next time you're curing some piping hot noodle soup. You can also check out the Nihongo Master blog for an even more in-depth guide to ordering your bowl of ramen. Let's do one more quick full cap recap before we finish for today. Chashu, braised pork usually served in ramen. Tsukemen, a dipping noodle style of ramen. Shio, salt. Shoyu, soy sauce. Futomen, thick noodles. Hosomen, thin noodles. Futsu, normal. Katame, firm. Yawarakame, soft. Okay, and that concludes our culinary tour of Japan. If you're sitting there amazed at what we left out, no tempura, no tapanyaki, sorry, but there's only so much time in the day. To cover every single side of Japanese cuisine would take solid 24 hours of straight podcasting, and I'm not so sure my lungs could take it. But if you want to chat with us about your favourite Japanese cuisine, or are feeling inspired to delve even deeper into the language for yourself with some online lessons, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and the official website to learn more. I've been Azra, and I'll be back soon to explore another part of Japan's amazing and crazy culture. Hoping you'll join me then as well. Matane! Matane!